Well, good morning. This morning, uh, please open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 3 this morning. It will be our time to consider a handful of verses from this wonderful book. I trust it will be an encouragement to us. Colossians 3, you will be helped to have God's Word open this morning. Um, and so I, I trust uh, you'll find your way there. And as you're uh, finding your way there, I just want to echo my brother Cody and... Um, Thank all the moms uh, that have been such a blessing to us, and uh, certainly it is good and right to set aside a day to celebrate your ministry to us. I just simply would like to add that uh, in the church, by God's grace, he creates a family. We'll actually be considering that in some ways today. And so a family has what? A family has mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. We even see this in 1 Timothy 5, where Paul actually says, hey, treat the older women as your mothers, and the older men as your fathers, and the younger women as your sisters. And I point that out simply to say that I have a mother, I'm blessed by having a mother, but I also have many spiritual mothers that have been a rich blessing in my life. And I, so I want to lift that ministry up to you women, that not only should you be a mother to the children you have and a grandmother to the children you have, if you've been so blessed to receive that, but that you are to be a spiritual mother to those who are here in this church, especially those who are younger than you. And uh, I'm so thankful for that ministry, and the church is richly blessed because of it. So we're thankful for our spiritual moms today. I also want to, just uh, before we get into the text, a little bit of a, a loving exhortation to you this morning. Uh, I spoke to my daughter uh, this week, and she expressed to me, said, Dad, you know, um, in the month of May, I'm going to be keeping nursery twice. I'm going to be teaching children's worship once and substituting for Sunday school class as well. And so, of course, as a dad, I'm very thankful for my 16-year-old's ministry to her church. But I also would like to use this as an opportunity to encourage us, in particular our members of this church, not to ride upon the backs of our 16-year-olds while they go about and do all the ministry so we could every Sunday after Sunday enjoy our time here. So if you are a member of Hamilton Baptist Church, I'm just speaking to members, not our, our guests, not our regular tenders, but those who have covenanted with us, our members, I, I would like and just express the will of your elders that you should be serving in some capacity on Sunday morning. And that which no one here should be freeloading free off anyone. We're all coming here to serve together. And so you say, well, pastor, how can I serve? Well, I'll tell you, we have a teller's ministry. We have usher ministry. We have a security ministry, we have a welcome desk, we have a choir, we have a praise band, we have an AV team, we have a nursery, we have children's worship, we have hospitality. See, all these are opportunities, and I'm not saying serve every Sunday, right? Uh, you get on the rotation, you serve once a month in some capacity. So we're all serving one another as we uh, become this wonderful church that God intends us to be. Amen. Okay, so if my, just to let you know, if my daughters keep having to do nursery multiple times a month, I'm going to start keeping nursery, and someone else is going to, I'm going to tap you on, you're preaching today, go get it, and because I got nursery duty, okay? I can't keep the nursery, I'm, uh, you know, I'm doing something else right now, so we all need to pitch together, and I hope you receive that in the love that's intended to uh, be shared with you. And here we are, Colossians chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 9 uh, through verse 11, hear now the word of God. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, 
which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Our Father, we're thankful for this glorious passage in front of us. We pray that you would help us to consider it this morning and that, Father, we would understand more and more your will for our lives and our church and the transformation you see to bring about not only in us as individuals but as a community of faith. And so, Father, um, we ask that you would come and be our teacher and apply these truths by your spirit. And, Father, we uh, also want to pray this morning for our mission team in Guatemala. We're thankful for those who we were able to send down. We pray, Father, as they're wrapping up their work down there, that um, you would abound the seeds that they've planted and the love they've shared, and that you would continue to use this church to reach the nations for Christ. And so do good work through that offering of missions, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was uh, thousands of years ago in the nation of Peru that man-made hills and valleys were constructed. And what makes these hills and valleys peculiar is that at least until the 20th century, they had no apparent function whatsoever. Uh, the hills would go on for like 100 yards and then just stop. Or, or one would go on for like uh, 500 feet and then turn uh, like directly right, a right angle, or turn left, or, or come around on itself. And many scholars guessed as to the function of these man-made structures. Some thought it might be some elaborate irrigation system. Others thought it might be some ancient boundary markers. The mystery was actually solved in 1939 when Dr. Paul Kasak of Long Island University simply flew over the hills and valleys in an airplane. And these seemingly random hills and valleys weren't random at all for he can see that they were actually enormous drawings of birds and animals. In other words, the ancient Peruvians created art that no one could appreciate from the ground. It made no sense, literally, it made no sense to us from the earthly perspective. You could only see its beauty from what we might say a heavenly perspective. And therefore, it might be a good metaphor for the Christian life. I don't know if you ever feel this way, like you're headed a certain direction, right? direction in your family, a direction in your career, a direction in your health, a direction uh, with your relationships, and somehow it comes to a, a dead stop, right? You're headed one way, you think you know where you're going, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's a, a right turn or a turn to the left, and you think, what's going on, and, and where am I going, and what's happening? Well, I wonder if that ever occurs to you, passages like Colossians 3.10 might be helpful for us. So Paul here tells us that we are being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, what Paul is explaining to us, what scripture tells us, is that we are in the middle of a renewal project. Not that you would, of course, eventually end up looking like a bird or an animal of some sort, but actually far more glorious than that, you would actually end up looking like what Paul calls the creator, whom we know, of course, from the book of Colossians is our Lord Jesus. Uh, of course, we see passages like this elsewhere in the Bible. Perhaps the most famous is Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, when it says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. That, that word workmanship 
We are God's workmanship is the Greek word poema, where we get the English word poem. So we, we might even put it this way. We are his masterpiece, right? Your life is God's artwork. And maybe you think, well, I don't really feel a lot like artwork today. I mean, my two-year-old can make better art than what my life is creating. Well, perhaps all you need is a higher perspective to see what God is doing in your life. We, of course, have been considering Colossians chapter 3, which uh, really is an entire passage about what the transformed Christian life is to look like. And we saw last time we were in the book of Colossians, in verse 5, we were to put to death these sins over here. Then in verse 8, we were to put off these sins over there. We are to leave the old behind and begin to walk in this newness of life. But we not only consider what we're to put to death, the sins we're to leave behind, we also consider, if you remember, how we're supposed to do this. And so you have these lists of things we're not supposed to do. The question naturally rises, is this just through my willpower? Is this just through kind of some kind of New Year's resolution, some religious committee, co- commitment, excuse me. Well, Paul will tell us, no, these lists of prohibitions, right? If, if God says, don't be angry, or if I say, you know, don't lust, as the Bible tells us here, that's not going to change your heart, right? So me telling you to stop lusting is not going to change your desire to lust. At best, you can suppress that desire, but that desire is still there. It's still inside of you. It's like putting a cat on a leash, okay? How's that going to work? Not well, as far as I know cats. I don't know them well, but I understand they don't like leashes, and they could very easily rip your face off, I'm pretty sure, right? And so you could hold on to that cat on the leash, but that's only going to work for a certain length of time, and it's not going to be very fun during that time. But what if we could transform that vile beast into something beautiful, like a, an obedient dog, for instance, who has no need of a leash, right? Okay, thank you very much. Right? And that, that uh, see, see, this is what God is in someone wants to do in us. He simply doesn't want us to give us law after law after law after law. He wants to actually change who you are, to change your heart. Which is why it's so important, and we'll keep going back to this, as we study, what we're studying really is Christian ethics in Colossians chapter 3. And yet we need to always start Christian ethics, that is, what should we do as Christians, with who are we as Christians. We start with our identity before we explain what it is we're supposed to do. It's why Colossians 3, 1 through 4 is so central to everything we learn in Colossians chapter 3. As we saw in verse 1, we've been raised with Christ. In verse 3, we've been hidden with Christ. In verse 4, we're going to be glorified with Christ. And therefore, Paul says and we should set our minds on Christ. And, and even beyond that, in verse 2, he tells us we should set our hearts upon Christ. Put our hearts there with Jesus. That's our identity. That's who you are. You are to think about these things and love these things and delight in these things. Delight who you are in Christ. You get your sense of worth from Christ. You get your sense of identity from Christ. Because if you get your sense of identity from your dress size, for instance, that will control your life. You will take certain actions in your life based upon that sense of worth. If you get your sense of worth based upon your relationships, that will control your life. If you get your sense of worth based upon money or respect or ease or security or materialism, you will be controlled by these things. And me telling you to stop being controlled by them won't do anything for you. You need a new identity. You need to get a sense of worth elsewhere, namely in Jesus. 
So I remind you, as before we look at these verses, Christianity is not simply a hobby. It's not simply a commitment. It's not simply a supplement to your life. It is a fundamental change in who you are. And this is, is the basic, under the basic battle, the key battle for the Christian transformation. Today, we're going to think about the new person that Christ is creating in us through three steps. Number one, the death of the old. Number two, the growth of the new. And then a new little wrinkle here in verse 11, the creation of a new humanity. And what we're going to learn in that third point, I'm excited to teach, is that the transformed Christian life is not simply about a bunch of uh, new individuals, but it's about a transformed community in Christ. So let's begin, first of all. Step number one, we see the death of the old self. Where we read in verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Paul says, you have put off the old self. The old self is simply an illusion, a reference to our sinful uh, nature. The Bible says that we're born in sin, we have an inclination towards sin, and that inclination has desires and practices, Paul says there in verse 9. And you notice what he tells us. If you're in Christ, that old self has been taken off. That is, your tastes have altered, your desires have been transformed, right? Those, those, those desires and activities have been taken off. Like an old ragged clothes, it's, we, we have been rid of them, right? This is what's happened to us. And we are to continue to get rid of them. And largely because of what Christ has done for us. And when I think about this reference to putting off, this is, seems like a, a reference perhaps to put, taking off these, these old garments. I think of this wonderful passage in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is a minor prophet. It's a very interesting minor prophet. And chapter 3 is a very interesting story of the high priest named Joshua. And Joshua happens to be standing before God in filthy garments. And at Joshua's right hand is none other than Satan. And Satan is pointing to Joshua, the high priest, and accusing him in front of God. And this high priest, of course, is a garment. It's not only a reference to his own sin, but as a representative of the people of God. It's a reference to the entire nation's sin, to the entire people, uh, people's sin. And the, the, the question is there is what hope there is there for Joshua to stand before this holy God dressed in the way he is. How will he avoid such a condemnation that the devil is bringing against him? And it's in that place of despair with that fully armed accuser right there. God says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And his holy angels come and remove those garments and begin to dress him with these pure, glorious clothing as God declares, I have taken away your iniquity and I clothe you in purity. You see, my brothers and sisters, it is only because we have a deliverer who will come to wear our filth on our behalf that we have any hope to stand before a holy God. For Jesus has come to bear our sin that we might bear his righteousness. If you're here this morning or perhaps you're watching on our live stream and you happen to not be a Christian, you might find this particularly interesting. That this is kind of the core of the Christian belief that God actually takes away our sin and gives us his righteousness through the work of Jesus Christ, his son, on the cross, dying there for our sin, and then being raised from the dead three days later. And we believe it's through that work of Jesus that he saves us. When we say saved, that's a kind of a key Christian term. He saves us from sin and judgment. 
we therefore call him a savior, the only savior we know. In other words, the alternative would, would be to believe that we live a certain kind of life in order for God to accept us, which of course is the teaching of all the world's religions. So you have Christianity over here and really every other world religion that says, hey, do this, do that, here's this list of things to do in order to be accepted by God. It is interesting, by the way, that every religion in the world, and its very starting point, assumes there is some barrier between us and God. Every religion, look it up, it starts from the assumption that we are not right with the deity, and yet every religion says, okay, in order to get right with the deity, do these things, accept Christianity. Christianity doesn't have a list of things to do in order to get right with God. And we think, in fact, such a way to live would be somewhat silly. We, it would be like a child, your child, let's say, comes to you and says, hey, mom, can I have a dollar to, to go buy you a present? And you say, sure, honey, here's a dollar. And, and, and they go and they, they buy you the present, and then they, they come back to you and they say, okay, mom, look, I bought you a present. Now I don't want you to spank me anymore. In fact, I don't want your charity anymore. In receiving this gift, you should give me room and board and drive me to all my activities and let me eat whatever I want and watch whatever I want. You should certainly stop caring about how I keep my room. After all, look what I just gave you. How would you respond? I mean, when you were done laughing. <laughs> well, you would say, you know, son, I, I love this gift. I'm, I'm thankful for it. But if you think by giving me things, you earn my acceptance, you don't understand our relationship at all. I love you because you're my son, right? I love you because you're my daughter. Not, not because of what you do, not because of the life you live, not because of the gifts you bring. And by the way, if you keep trying to earn my love if, through these gifts or through this effort, they'll actually come in between us. See, if we think we can come with God with our arms full of, of gifts or, or righteous acts or goodness and say, because God, I've done this and I've done that and I've, I'm a good person and I'm nice to my neighbors and all the rest, therefore you should accept me, right? God will say, actually, no, that won't bring acceptance at all. In fact, everything I've given you, you're just, it, it, you're just using the things I've given you. The only way for God to accept us is for God to actually become our father, for us to become his son, us to become his daughter. We do that by receiving Christ as Savior. And we don't try to earn God's favor. It's a gift given to us. We accept it by faith. I appreciate what Tim Keller often says. All you need is nothing, but most people don't have it. Right? All you need to come to God is with your arms empty. But so often we want to come with arms full. No, we come with nothing except a plea for mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And God will lavish mercy upon you. He will make you indeed into a new person. That's what it says there in verse 9, doesn't it? Seeing that you have put off the old self. The old is gone because the new has come in Christ. And so let's not, if we put off the old self, let's not put those garments back on. In fact, one of those practices he singles out, you see there in verse 9, is dishonesty. Do not lie to one another, he says, seeing that you have put off the old self. That's not the life we live anymore. Paul often, interestingly, mentions lying when he speaks of the Christian transformation. And of course, we can think of lying as outright lies. We could also think of it as shading the truth in order to get what we want or concealing our sin or exaggerating our achievements. All of that, I think, would be dishonesty. 
Paul tells us that lying is of the old self. That's, that's what you used to be like. That's who you used to be. In fact, Jesus, in, I think it's John chapter 8, will identify the devil as the liar, doesn't he? He says the devil doesn't hold to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Of course, Jesus will identify himself quite the opposite. In John 14, verse 6, you know that. For I am the way, what is it? The truth, that's right, and the, and the uh, life. And so Satan is the, the, the liar and Jesus is the truth. Therefore, to lie is to directly stand in opposition to who Jesus is and side with the one who, who opposes him in everything. It's not who you are, Christian. That's not what God has made you to be. So take off that dishonesty, for that old man has died. And the new man is growing, as we turn to, secondly, the growth of the new self. For we read in verse 10, and have put on the new self. All, all believers have a new self. We have new spiritual sensitivities and new spiritual abilities and wonderful new spiritual possibilities. And notice, by the way, that this has been put on you. This has already happened. This is not a command. Look at verse 10. He's not saying, and put on the new self. He says, and, and you have put on the new self. This, is, this has already happened when you came to Christ. This is the starting point. God did this for you. And yet that transformation that began when you came to Christ continues on as we read, uh, read in verse 10 where he says, which is, which is, that's which is referring to the new self. The new self is being renewed. That's ongoing in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so we're being renewed. There's a renewal project taking place in you, which of course means you haven't arrived. You're not where you will one day be. You are an ongoing work, an ongoing renewal work. It reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Though outwardly we are wasting away, right? Anybody feel that? Outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Right? So your bodies are going one direction, okay? And the inner man keeps going the other, keeps getting better, becoming more alive. In fact, that word renewal here in verse 10 comes from the same root of, of the word youth, right? So Christian, in, in many ways, you are becoming younger day by day, okay? okay? You, you should therefore becoming more joyful, more at peace, more thankful, more confident, more gracious, more in love with Jesus, right? Are you becoming more in love with Christ? Day by day, my love for Jesus is growing, for day by day I learn of more and more reasons to love him. I often, as a pastor, have an opportunity to stand next to a groom on his wedding day. I have the best, best seat in the house, Right? I'm right there down front, standing right next to the groom. He's strong and handsome, looking better than he has ever been, looked. Right? And there he, he looks, and, 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 and down comes his bride. She's radiant. He is surrounded by pretty much everyone he loves and cares for, have all gathered on this day to watch him be united by God to this woman uh, that is now approaching him. And, and everyone's looking at the bride, and rightly, rightfully so. But I like to, do you still glance at the groom? I always like to look at the groom, right? And as his bride walks towards him. And you see this just look on his face of just wonder and glory and joy. And I know what he's thinking. Uh, you probably know what he's thinking too. He's standing there watching her come down, and he's thinking, there has never been a man in all the world 
that has loved a woman like I love this woman. Now, it's his wedding day, and so I don't want to ruin the moment, okay? But he actually knows nothing about anything, right? <laughs> Let's just be honest, those of us who have been married for a while. Totally clueless. Okay? And you can almost imagine, you know, it would be kind of cool if, like, you know, 10 years later, 20 years later, he comes by my office and says, hey, pastor, remember, remember that day when I got married and, and I thought I knew everything about loving my wife? I had no idea what I was thinking. And now I'm 10 years in, and I have about 10,000 more reasons to love her. So it will be with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will be throughout all eternity. More and more and more reasons to love him. But we start now. We're being renewed that we might love him more faithfully. In fact, we're told how this is happening. You see that little phrase there, in knowledge, being renewed in knowledge. In fact, Paul will exhort us in verse 16 to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, just as he prayed in chapter 1 and verse 9 as he began this letter. And so from day we heard, heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He wants us to know God. He wants us to be filled with knowledge. He wants us to seek to know him more fully. Because that knowledge is the means of our renewal. It's how the renewal happens. We know this to be the case because we see the goal of the renewal as we read on in verse 10, don't we? It says, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Okay, so we're going to, the renewal is to become more like him, to look more like him. But how do we become more like him unless we know what he's like? How do we know what he's like? We do so through knowledge, through scripture, through understanding his word. So the scripture, as it reveals to us the Lord and the Holy Spirit works it in our life, he makes us more like Jesus. So that's the how and the why of this renewal. How are we being renewed? Through God's word, through knowledge. Why? So that we might become like God. We are created, of course, like God. We're created in God's image. In his likeness, he created us, the Bible tells us. And yet, because of our sin and rebellion, that image of God has been distorted in us. It's still, we still reflect God, but we're like a shattered mirror. Yeah, you could get something out of it, but it's still, it's broken. It's, it's been defaced. We defaced his image. And so what God is doing is he's restoring us to what we are supposed to be. In fact, what we one day will be for our destiny is told us, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 49, for we read, as we've been born, uh, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's a reference to Adam, as we have borne the image of Adam, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we'll be. That's what God is doing in our life. It was in 1972 that a man entered St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and then he began to strike violently Michelangelo's 1496 marble sculpture the Paeda. I don't know if you've ever seen the Paeda. I've seen it in person. It is unbelievable that anybody can make something like this. It is a marble statue of Mary holding Jesus in her lap after he was crucified. It is unbelievably glorious and lifelike. Well, this man began to strike it with a hammer. He got 15 blows on the Paeda, broke off Mary's left arm, broke off her nose, and chipped her eyelid. 
uh, until an American actually jumped him and restrained him. About 10 months of specialists worked on the Paeta to restore this sculpture, and the result is utterly amazing. In fact, the biggest problem was the eyelid, uh, because in the attack, another American picked it up, put it in his pocket, and took it home. Right? And I guess just the guilt wore upon him, so he mailed Mary's eyelid back to Rome. Sorry, here's Mary's eyelid. Right? If you look, you can, you can follow the restoration process online. It is, it is unbelievable. You cannot at this point notice any blemish. You can't identify anywhere where, that anything had ever happened. So skilled are the craftsmen as they restored this image. And you understand a greater craftsman's working on you. And he is in the process of restoring the beauty of his design in you. You are his masterpiece. He is making you after the image of your creator. And of course, it's just not you though, it's us. You see the process, you follow the process, the old self is removed, the new self is begun, then the renewal continues, and that renewal goes on to create a new humanity. See, God's not only after new individuals, but a new people, as we consider thirdly the creation of a new humanity. For he says here in verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And I, I think perhaps at this point it might be helpful just to kind of, uh, for just a couple minutes, remember where we've been in the book of Colossians. You, you remember, of course, that we, in chapter one, we studied extensively who is Jesus. We saw that Jesus was, is the image of the invisible God, chapter 1 and verse 15. And that Jesus is before all things, chapter 1, verse 17. And in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, chapter 1, verse 19. And this eternal Jesus created all things, chapter 1, verse 16. That nothing in this universe exists that wasn't made by Jesus. But beyond that, he keeps all things. For we read all things hold together in him, chapter 1, verse 17. That is, every electron in the universe stays in orbit around its nucleus because of Christ. That every molecule and every brain, brain, brain wave and every heartbeat and every mysterious notion of the soul is kept in existence by King Jesus. He created all things and he preserves all things. And we found out that he does this all for, ultimately, for himself. For we read all things are created by him and for him, chapter 1, verse 17, that you exist for him and all things exist for him so that in all things he might be preeminent, chapter 1, verse 18. But he's not preeminent because of our sin. For we are, we are one time living in the domain of darkness, chapter 1, verse 13, alienated to God due to our hostile minds and evil deeds, chapter 1, verse 21. And so God's ambition, therefore, God's goal, God's plan to be glorified, to be preeminent in us is at risk because of sin. So out of his grace, he comes to redeem us from our great rebellion and forgives us of all our sin, chapter 1, verse 14, and cancels our debt, nailing it to the cross, chapter 2, verse 14. In other words, the eternal divine son, the creator of all things, the keeper of all things, who is before all things, the image of the invisible God, the one in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, is nailed to a cross in order to buy us back from our own rebellion to sin. The debt was paid, the curse was endured, the enemies were disarmed, chapter 2, verse 15, and now by his spirit he causes a new birth in us, chapter 2, verse 11, that you who are dead in your trespasses have been made alive in Christ, chapter 2, verse 13. 
but it's just not you. This then is announced throughout the entire world. The gospel is proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, chapter 1, verse 28. And as the gospel is proclaimed, people will believe, chapter 1, verse 23, and receive Jesus Christ as Savior, chapter 2, verse 6. They will see and embrace the riches of his glory, chapter 1, verse 27. And those who do declare that they belong to him through baptism. They, they've been buried, the old man's been buried through baptism, and they declare that they've been raised with him through baptism and by their faith, chapter 2, verse 12. And then we go on to put the death, our sinful practices, the sinful ways of thinking and speaking, chapter 3, verse 5 and verse 8. And those, those practices to us are like stinking grave clothes, and we toss it aside and I'm, I'm alive. I, I'm not dead anymore. I'm not wearing that. I used to be that way, chapter 3, verse 7. That's not who I am anymore, chapter 2, verse 11. And then we put on the new self, chapter 3, verse 1, and we set our minds in heaven, chapter 3, verse 1, put our hearts in heaven, chapter 3, verse 2. As one put it, so that he would become the greatest treasure of our knowing minds and the greatest pleasure of our hoping hearts. And as our knowing minds are filled with the riches of his glory and our hoping hearts are filled with the pleasures of his glory, they are being renewed in the knowledge after the image of our creator, Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 10, in order that he might be preeminent in all things. But is that it? Do we put a period there? Okay, that's the end of the story. No. See, as glorious as that is, that's not the end. Because God is simply not creating new redeemed individuals. He is gathering those new redeemed individuals into a people. A new community that the Bible calls the church. Chapter 1 verse 18, chapter 2 verse 2, chapter 2 verse 19. And one of the marks of this new humanity is that the things that used to divide us are gone. The things that we used to boast in or identify in are banished. That we who once were divided by ethnicity or were divided by the color of our skin, as silly as that is, or divided by our language that we speak, as absurd as that would be, or our suspicions or our jealousies, whatever it is, the things that, that used to divide us, status, homeland, they don't divide us anymore. For he is creating a new community here, he says in verse 11. Where's here? That's the church. Here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. Why? Because Christ is all. And Christ is in all. And so Jesus is taking down the dividing wall of hostility and suspicion and jealousy and arrogance and racism... And there he has created a new fellowship of love and, and embrace and delight in and among people who are to be vastly different than us. In fact, you notice the divisions in which he expresses here. This is not Jew and Greek here. Despite, this is an ancestral hatred. This is a hatred that goes on for hundreds of years. I, I don't know the modern equivalent to this. It would be like saying in the 1940s, here in the church there is no German or Jew. It would be like saying in the 1680s in the South, here in the church there's no black or white. I think that's gone. There's no circumcised and uncircumcised. That is those who conform to strict religious regulations and protocols and those who don't at all. There's no barbarian and Scythian. 
A barbarian is a mocking term, by the way, of how people spoke differently from you. You could even hear it in the language. Bar, 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 bar. Right? It's a, it's a mocking term, a derisive term of those foreigners who won't learn our language. They just call them barbarians. Scythians were a nomadic people who lived near the Black Sea who were savage, brutal, unrefined. So a Scythian was like a barbarian on steroids. Okay? Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, said Scythians delight in murdering people and are little better than wild beasts, end quote. Well, they, no, we don't divide on that either. Slave and free. I mean, two radically different social statuses, but they're no longer ultimate in the church. They don't divide us, just like they did it in the year 203 A.D., when a 22-year-old noblewoman named Perpetua and a slave girl named Felicity were both arrested and imprisoned together for the crime of converting to Christianity. And while they were awaiting their execution, Perpetua's father, who was not a believer, came to his daughter, again, 22-year-old noblewoman, and he, he begged her to renounce her faith in Jesus. She picked up a water pot, and she said, Father, can this water pot be called by anything other than it is? He was somewhat confused. He said, no. She looked at him and said, so I also cannot call myself anything other than I am, and I am a Christian. And her interaction with the slave girl in the same cell was so powerful that the jailer who held them imprisoned converted to Christ and was executed for it. These two women entered the amphitheater to face their execution. And one one uh, observer said joyfully, I'm quoting him, as if they were on their way to heaven. <laughs> and of course they were. They did so holding hands, a Roman aristocrat, a lowly slave girl, hand in hand, in hand singing as they walked to face the gladiator. Now, if you'll let this sink into you, this is staggering. Because we, as a people throughout this world, this is not just simply an American issue, though it is. But you go to Guatemala, go to Ghana, go to Vanuatu, go to Azerbaijan, as I have, and you will see deep, deep division. They're everywhere. And yet they are not. Where are they not to be but in the church? People throughout this world are divided by ethnicity, culture, language, wealth, status, custom, education. These are grand canyons of division, and Jesus bridges them all. He has created a new people who have thrown off their old selves and have put on their new self, and no canyon will stop the fellowship and love uh, uh, and unity between them. And I, and I use the word unity purposely because, note, he is not creating uniformity. In other words, the distinctions don't disappear. God is, God's not, when he creates you new, he doesn't obliterate who you are. Right? And, and if you want evidence of this, just turn, look over in chapter 4. Look what Paul says. Paul's listing name after name after name. It's actually a super helpful passage. But look at verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. Aristarchus, Aristarchus, excuse me, my fellow prisoner greets you and Mark. So you got Aristarchus, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. You got three guys. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So Paul lists three names amidst a, a number of names. He's largely part of a Gentile team. Paul says, I have three Jewish kinsmen 
And man, they have been a couple. I'm so thankful for them. In, in other words, what he's telling us is ethnicity doesn't disappear when we come to Christ. Doesn't mean it becomes meaningless. Listen, I meet a Californian, I still get excited, okay? Now, you don't get excited because you don't know better, okay? But I, I do, right? You meet someone from your hometown, you're excited to meet them. We are still who we are. As one put it, I could still see your Jewish nose. I could still see your Greek forehead. I could still hear your barbarian accent. I could see your Scythian gestures. You have not ceased to be you, except that you are all wearing Christ. In other words, these things continue to exist. They just don't divide us anymore, which is why the new humanity is glorious. It's unity, not uniformity. And to use a metaphor, and I hope I don't mess this up, because I know nothing about singing. So, Don, you, you yell at me if I'm wrong. But singing alto is different than singing bass. Is that accurate? Is that? Okay, that's true. Okay. But that difference is not a barrier to singing together. Is that true? It actually makes the singing more glorious. Is that true? Awesome. You see my point? Right? So it's actually, I mean, listen. Is it not glorious when, when, when the Jew lets the Scythian hold her little baby? Because they're in Christ together. Is it not glorious when the slave invites the aristocrat over for lunch after church? Is that not glorious? It was glorious about five years ago when I was preaching at a missions conference uh, near Embassy Row in Washington, D.C., and the pastor of that church had the same psalm read by members of his church in 27 different languages. That was glorious. It was glorious about 15 years ago when I was in the inner, inner city of Philadelphia. Like, inner, inner city. There was actually a burnt-out car sitting in the middle of the road. It looks like it had been there for years. I mean, this is deep inner city. And I'm in a church service in an abandoned building. And a man pulls up in his BMW. And he embraces a man that looks like he just crawled out of the gutter. And they stood next to each other with arms raised, singing to Jesus. And half the sermon was in Spanish. And there are black people and there are white people. And we are all worshiping together. And, and, and feasting together and spending time together. You see, that, that glory takes place only in the church. And by the way, it's happening on every continent, in every country. There are gatherings this day everywhere. House churches, secret churches, country churches, slum churches, suburban churches, urban churches, mega churches. That, that miracle is happening everywhere with no diplomacy, no economic policy, no political dictate, a new humanity is gathering. As one explained, it is precisely because we can still see Jew and Greek and barbarian, Scythian, slave and free that the unifying insignia of Christ shines with the glory that it does not, that it does. He is not a tribal deity, he is the redeemer of a new humanity. This is what Hamilton Baptist Church is to be. This is what Hamilton Baptist Church must be. Okay. We will not, ought not, must not divide based upon education status, based upon political part, part, uh, beliefs, partisanship, based upon jobs, based upon title, based upon cars we drive, based upon philosophies of educating our children, or whatever it might be. We must not. In, in particular, let me speak to the teenagers here this morning. I, I, I used to be a teenager, believe it or not. I don't know if times have changed. I was spent seven years as a youth pastor. And both those experiences taught me that there, you go through a phase where it, for some reason, is cool 
to be mean to other teenagers who are not like you. Like, that's the cool thing. To be nice to them is uncool. You get with your group that are like, like you, and they get with their group that's like them. I don't know if that goes on. But please understand, if you give yourself to such thoughts, not only is that, not, not only is that wrong, it's godly. And it is standing in direct opposition to what Christ has died to accomplish. And of course, this is not just an issue for teenagers, certainly not. Younger people must not look at older people as outdated and irrelevant. Older people must not look at younger people as foolish and unimportant. And on and on we could go. Why? Well, he tells us because Christ is all and in all. Christ is in all. Christ through his Holy Spirit dwells all Christians, Jews and Gentiles, Americans and Austrians and single and married and doctors and dishwashers. He, and young and old, he is in all. And if Christ is not ashamed to indwell you as he indwells me, then I won't be slow to embrace you. I like how Sinclair Ferguson tells the Scottish Presbyterian pastor who tells a story of a murder that took place in a Chinese restaurant in Scotland. The waiter saw the whole thing. And the waiter was a witness at the murder trial. And the attorney said, did you see the murder? He said, yes, sir. Was the man stabbed? Yes, sir. Is, the is this the knife that was used? Yes, sir. Do you recognize the man who committed the murder? No, sir. And the attorney was utterly astonished. He said, you saw the murder, but don't recognize the man who did it. The accused, by the way, is sitting right there, right in front of him. You don't recognize him. The Chinese waiter said, no, sir. The attorney said, how can that be? He said, all you English look alike to me. Should we not, in some sense, say that about one another? She resembles Jesus. He looks like my Lord. After all, the spirit that indwells her indwells me. Christ is in all. You do understand there are not 10 million different Holy Spirits. You get one and I get one. It's the same Holy Spirit. The one who is in you is also the one in me and it's in her and, and him. And so when we see a person in our church and we think, oh, no, not him again, not her again. We want to run for the door. Listen, you have to fight against that. Because what you have in common with that person coming towards you is far, far greater than the petty things that might divide you. Christ is in you and is in him. For Christ is all. That's what he says. We'll end here. Christ is all and in all. He is all. We, we kind of end where we started, don't we? That Christ is, Christ is my all. He's my life. Christ is my identity. I am a Christian. He is my success. He is my significance. He is my satisfaction. He is my peace. He is my meaning. He is to be preeminent in my life. Christ is to be everything to me, and Christ is to be everything to you. And I think here we find the only weapon that will truly destroy racism and everything else that divides us, every other wicked division. I think once we find our significance in Christ, we used to find our significance in what separate us from others. I'm smart, I'm pretty, I'm witty, I'm rich, whatever it is, right? I'm an American, I'm successful. Those don't rule us anymore, right? I'm, I'm not in love with those things anymore. I'm in love with Jesus. That's my new identity. That's my new worth. That's my new satisfaction. Jesus is my new peace. For Christ is in all and is all. And I will remind you once again, as I think I'll probably say many times for the rest of Colossians 3, this is the battleground of the entire Christian life. To make Jesus your all as you set your hearts on Christ who is in heaven. Our Father, we are thankful for the great work that you are doing. And we are amazed that we can be part of it. 
we should be deeply humbled that you have, by your kindness and grace to us, decided to do this work in our lives. May we embrace it fully. In the areas in which we need to change, even as we thought about these things, may you give us repentance. May we turn them over. May we put off the things that no longer belong to us. Embrace the things that do. We want to be made like our Lord. And so help us. And help us not just as individuals, but help us as a community. You're creating a people, a community, because, well, after all, you, God, are a community. We have one God in three persons. A community of unity, love, fellowship from eternity past into eternity future. And as we are made in your image, we reflect it, not simply by ourselves, but as we live in community as you have shown. So continue to do your good work in Hamilton Baptist Church. We are thankful for this church. We have so many things to praise you for. And yet, Father, we pray that you would continue to renew us. 